we are a species of moonshots. And so as you're putting these experiments into place, you don't have to aim for the moon, but aim a little bit higher than you would have done before. I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business. It's about contribution. It's about meaning. That is what we seek. That is what we truly want. And you absolutely are here to serve the world. And I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Hey guys, it's Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. I hope that you guys checked out our episode we did yesterday. We did a bonus episode, my husband and I, and I hope you liked it. Thank you to all of you who wrote in and said that you really found it touching and helpful. I'm so glad. If you continue to like those, we'll we'll just keep doing them. If it feels like, eh, no need, then we'll stop. Um, and if you really, really like it, we might even just put it on a totally different feed. But uh, it was nice to be able to share with you some really vulnerable, real inside info on like what it's like to to be me, to what it's like for us to be married, what it's like for us to go through sort of our triggers, the good, the bad, the hard, everything in between. You guys are just the best and I love you so much and you made my husband feel so welcome. So thank you. And um, I also want to thank you for being just so gracious to me throughout everything. We've been together now three years, you guys, you and me. Um, I started this podcast January 2017, and I just can't believe how much I've gotten to to connect with you and how much kindness um, you've given to me. And so I want to thank you for sharing with me what you need. You know, I told you last week that I was I was doing what all business people need to be doing all the time, which is constantly doing taking action. We're iterating, we're testing things, we're getting inspired and saying like, let's see if this works. And that's what businesses are constantly doing. We have to have radical empathy. We have to test things. And then we have to quickly listen to the people we serve and, and hear them and hear what they need. And if we're doing that, then, then it's all good. It doesn't matter how many times we test it. It doesn't matter if we try it this way or that way. What matters is that we listen. And what matters is that we get the feedback. And instead of taking things personally or instead of getting stuck on our ego or our idea, we just go for it. And then if things don't seem to land, we ask why or how we can do a better job and we move forward. So I shared with you last week where I was at and what I was wanting to do. And then I said, what do you really need right now? Like, what do you need? And I put up a little survey and you guys started answering. And then, you know, what happened is I sat downstairs the next morning reading your results and I was sitting in my living room and I was drinking a cup of coffee and I just closed my eyes and I said, what do I need to be doing right now in this moment? And I asked God, 
and I asked myself, like, what's my truth here? And I asked, what do you guys really need? And I, I looked at all the data and then I, I really just sat with it for a minute and I started to cry. And I realized that what you need is for me to be here with you in this moment, right in this moment. And I am here for it. I am here for this. I am here for this moment. I am here to hold space for you to really just feel all the things because it is so crazy what's happening right now and it's unprecedented and there's so much, right? There's just so much going on. There's so many feelings. There's overwhelm. There's uncertainty. There's anxiety. Um, There's also some silver linings and beautiful things that we're feeling being with our families, but there's a lot here. And I started thinking, what do you really need? What do you really, really need in this moment? And what are you saying that you're needing? And it's so obvious what you need. And not only do you need a person who just makes space to hear you and to be empathetic, but but also really as a matter of a fact, like what you need is to see what's possible. What the heck is possible here? Like what can you build? And for so many of you, you've been trying to quit these day jobs for a while and build things. And now more than ever, you need to figure out how to do it virtually. How are you going to build your thing online? How are you going to create an engaged audience? Because no matter what you want to create, whether you're going to be selling t-shirts or courses or yoga, you need an audience to sell it to. So you need an engaged audience. I heard you saying that loud and clear and you're right. You've been doing your homework. You need an engaged audience for sure. And then you need to get what's really here. And is it actually epic and incredible that you maybe will now be sort of forced to push it forward and and force the issue and do something about this moment? And maybe now you will create that online course or you will start recording that podcast or you will create that membership or you will start looking at how can you make some money and quickly. And so guess what I'm doing? I am doing this. I'm doing a five-day challenge. And what we're going to do is for five days, I'm going to show up live Monday through Friday. And I am coming with so much juicy, awesome training and content for you for free. And every day of those five days, I'm going to show you how you can make money online, how you can engage an audience online, how you can build the most gorgeous platform so that after the quarantine, you don't have to go back to a nine to five. You can do something that you love that makes an impact. And one of the things I'm going to show you, which is kind of my signature sauce is very different than what most people online are teaching. Instead of spending a year building your email list and instead of overthinking it and making your beautiful templates and websites and course slideshows, no, 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 no. I want to show you how you can quickly get some offers out, start serving human beings and get some cash in the door. And I feel so grateful that the very last um, program we did made to do this, we already see people who graduated last week who are already making offers and already making money. And it's not impossible. It's actually very possible. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you some awesome tools and some awesome ideas and some things that you can start implementing right away. And I can't wait. So if you want to be a part of this five-day challenge, go to the link in my Instagram bio. I'm so excited and I'm here for it. I'm here for all of it and I can't wait. And thank you so much for sharing with me, for being there with me. This is going to be so fun. I'm so excited. All right, 
Let's dive into today's episode because it is so good. Today, you're going to hear the wisdom from this incredible soul. His name is Ozan Varal. He's a rocket scientist turned professor, podcaster, author, speaker, blogger. He served as part of the team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project that sent two rovers to Mars. Like he's a real rocket scientist, but apparently it wasn't enough. So he became a law professor and then a podcaster, and now he's an author. His book came out just on April 14th. It's called Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in work and in life. In this beautiful book, which you're definitely going to need to grab, he reveals nine simple strategies from rocket scientists that you can use to make your own giant leaps in work and in life, whether it's building your dream job, accelerating your business, learning a new skill, or creating another breakthrough. Stay tuned because we're going to dig into all the juicy pieces. Also, check out his awesome podcast. It's called Famous Failures. I love that. On his show, Ozon interviews the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they've learned from all of it. He's talked with some of our friends here on the show, like Neil Pasricha, James Clear, Gretchen Rubin. And just last week, he released an episode. And guess who was on it? Me. I had so much fun. It's such a pleasure and a privilege to talk to him. So you guys can go check that out after if you want. Ozan has an incredible way of bringing light to the truths that we know so deep down, but we haven't necessarily given ourselves permission to listen and to implement what we know. And I think he's going to help you to change that today. So without further ado, please welcome the awesome Ozan Varal. Ozan, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for coming on. I'm delighted to be here, Kathy. Thank you for having me on. You are so smart and you're equally kind. I got to be on your show. For those of you listening, he has an amazing podcast. It's called Famous Failures, which is so beautiful. So you wrote a book and you've been doing such awesome stuff. And I want people to understand your backstory. So why don't you just take us through the journey of what got you even interested in writing these kinds of books and having these kinds of conversations? Sure. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I lived there for 17 years, grew up in a family of no English speakers. I learned English as a second language. And then came to the United States to study astrophysics at Cornell. I worked on the operations team for the Mars Exploration Rovers mission, which sent two rovers to Mars back in 2003. And then I did this major 180 and went to law school, um, became a law professor eventually. I practiced law for about two years in San Francisco, didn't love that, and then went into academia. And I've been a law professor now for, well, since 2010, so close to 10 years. After I got tenure, though, I wanted to do something more. So I wanted to reach mainstream audiences because with academics, I mean, you spend a year of your life toiling away, writing an article that only, you know, 10 people in this very specialized field are going to read, which just wasn't nourishing my soul. So I wanted to branch out and, and do more. And uh, so I started a blog, a podcast, and eventually wrote a book that's coming out on April 14th called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. It's kind of awesome. Like you just sort of listed all those things, but each one of those things is like so epic. Like how do you have the willingness to go, this is so challenging and I'm here for it? Uh, you're so generous, Kathy, first of all. Thank you so much. Um, well, I think there are a number of things at work here. The, the first is the way I was raised. So my parents were very intentional about making sure I had autonomy when it came to the important decisions of my life. Like just to cite one example, this would have been when I was like four or five years old. So just kindergarten age. And in Istanbul, 
where we were living, there was like six public kindergartens close to our home. And uh, you could pick any one of them. And my parents went to six of these, all of them, and picked out three that they thought would work well. And then they came on and they said, we narrowed it down to three kindergartens, but it's your choice. So you get to pick the school that you're going to attend. And I'm like four or five years old, right? And making this important decision and like going to these three kindergartens and asking them questions about the kinds of toys they had and, and everything that I thought was important. But I, that was really a formative moment for me. Because regardless of what circumstances we were living in at the time, and I come from a humble economic background, my parents made me believe that anything was possible. That if I wanted something, that like limiting belief that a lot of people have, uh, my parents said basically that there is no limit to what you can do. Um, And so when I was 16, 17 years old and obsessed with space and astronomy, I applied to Cornell and found out that there was this astronomy professor there who was going to be the principal investigator for this Mars mission. I just wrote an email to him. I mean, there was no job listing, but I just said, like, I would die to work for you. Here's my resume. My dad always said, you know, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. So I just bought a ticket and sent him my resume. And I had taught myself how to program in high school. And, and that turned out to be really important to him. And he invited me in for an interview. And like, all of a sudden, like two weeks before, I was sitting in a small apartment in Turkey, daydreaming about space. And then fast forward two weeks, I'm at Cornell working on this Mars mission, in large part because I thought it just was possible that I could do it. I love your dad. That's such a great story. Yeah. And it's amazing how, you know, you talked about how you taught yourself how to program. And this is where the programming happens. This is where all the coding happens is right there, five years old, boom. So let's talk about what you are so passionate about, which is in this book, you say you can make giant leaps in your work and your life with these simple strategies if you think like a rocket scientist. What does it mean to think like a rocket scientist? I'm going to answer that with a story, and the story actually opens the book. Um, It's the story of John F. Kennedy stepping up to the podium in 1962 in the Rice University Stadium. And that's when he pledged to land a man on the moon and return him back to Earth when the decade was out. Now, in looking at this in hindsight, of course, it happened in 1969. But at the time, most people in the audience, including officials at NASA, thought Kennedy was promising the impossible. Because a lot of the prerequisites for a manned mission to Mars hadn't even been developed. Like no astronaut had worked outside of a spacecraft, Two spacecraft had never docked together in space. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface was actually solid enough to support a spacecraft, if like something landed on it, if it would just cave right through. They didn't know if the communication system would work on on the moon. Some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented. So we, we jumped into the cosmic void and hoped we'd grow wings on the way up. And we did. And I, I mean... When the Wright brothers took their first power flight in the early 1900s, someone who was six years old when that happened, and that flight lasted for all of 12 seconds and moved like 100 feet, would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to take a man to the moon and bring him back safely to the earth. When that giant leap taken within a single human lifespan, as often celebrated as the triumph of technology, but it wasn't. It was the triumph of humans behind the technology. 
and a certain thought process they used to turn the seemingly impossible into the possible. So I wanted to write a book about this thought process in large part because I mean, people look at rocket science and say, now that's reserved for geniuses, right? I, I'm not smart enough to, to sort of figure out how this works. So I wanted to write a book, not about the science behind rocket science, but about the frameworks of thinking, about the way that rocket scientists approach problems and approach uncertainty, approach failure, approach success, and how they use them to their benefits to achieve what most people thought was impossible. It's so beautiful that you just sort of like exposed what, what was sort of like the backdrop of everything that JFK shared. Because everybody knows that famous moment and we don't understand what you understand as an actual rocket scientist. And you're like, hey guys, let me explain. These were all the most important things that had not even been invented, weren't being you know, readily used, and he's still saying this is what we're going to do. We don't understand it. We don't have the sophistication to know that. And then when you say it, it brings tears to my eyes because you're like, we went into the cosmic void and hope that we grow wings on the way up. I'm going to cry again. That's so beautiful. Because like that is literally, that's the human test. When everything says, like, you know, I went through 12 rounds of fertility treatment, but every time it was like, here are the odds you're going to be disappointed. We're going in right? And then you do it enough. And then, oh my God, like, thank God I have three healthy kids. But so much of my life was like, here's all the reasons this won't work. And I'm so grateful that you have this knowledge and that you have the spirit you have because they can hear it from you on a level that I just, what an incredible book, what an incredible message, what an incredible everything. I'm like so moved by it. So distill down for us. I love what you said. It's not technology. It's the thought process behind it. Mm, let's piece that apart. Tell mm -hmm. me what that thought process is. Okay. So there, there's nine strategies in the book and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to begin with, with one of them, which is moonshot thinking, which we already started to get into with Kennedy's speech here. But I want to share something with the audience here. Moonshots aren't limited to rocket science and we are really a species of moonshots, even though we've forgotten it. I mean, our, our first literal moonshots, of course, was Armstrong and Aldrin walking on the moon. We've been taking metaphorical moonshots long before that happened. The discoverers of the fire, the inventors of the wheel, the makers of automobiles, they all took moonshots. It was a moonshot for slaves to reach for freedom, for women to take the ballot, for refugees to push toward distant shores in search of a better life. We are a species of moonshots, but we've been conditioned by society to have small dreams. We've been conditioned to believe that coasting is better than soaring, that small dreams are wiser than moonshots. I mean, most people weren't, I think, lucky enough to be raised by the type of parents that, that raised me that made me believe that actually, you know what, moonshots are doable. And so there's a whole chapter dedicated to, to busting that myth that small dreams are better. Um, and you know, you don't have to actually aim for the moon, but just aim a little bit higher. Because what you strive for becomes your ceiling. So if you're aiming low, low is as far as you can go. But if you aim just a little bit higher, you'll soar higher than you would have done before. And even if you fail, by the way, you're still gonna end up higher than you would have done before. 
you have a way of speaking where like the way you put words together in a sentence, which is the same idea I've heard before. I'm like, I have to write that down. It's so powerful. Like this idea of moonshots too. Like I've never heard that. Is that a thing or you made that up? No, that, that was a thing. I did not make that up. But, yeah. didn't, but you like explained it really well. I've never heard that. So let's move through the strategies. Okay. What's the next but, thing? About working through failure is, is another important one. So rocket scientists have a different approach to failure than most of society. Failure has become, I have a podcast dedicated to this, but failure has become more popular in, in recent years, especially Silicon <laughs> Valley has sort of popularized this idea of fail fast, fail forward, fail, fail often. Um, there are now like funerals that are being held for startups complete with like bagpipes and DJ spinning yes. records and alcohol flowing freely. Um, and so I actually, I don't buy it and I don't buy it for, for two reasons. So it's one thing to accept failure is something else to celebrate it. When you celebrate something, you often don't learn from it. Um, and there's, I, I cite research in the book, uh, both from the business world. And there's also a study that was done of 6,500 cardiac surgeons who had made an error in cardiac procedures and they tracked their progress over time to see how that affected future surgeries. And it showed that they actually performed worse. They kept making the same mistakes basically. And so going from one failure to the next, failing fast and failing often, doesn't mean you're learning from failure, which really is the most important part, right? Because if you're just doing the same thing over and over again and failing over and over again, that is not persistence. I mean, that's insanity because you're going to burn out and nothing is going to change. And so really, I think the mantra should be to learn fast, not to fail fast. And so rocket scientists definitely take a learning-based approach to, to failure. And they also know that breakthroughs tend to be evolutionary, not revolutionary. So if you're trying to achieve something transformative, you're probably not going to succeed on the first try. So Albert Einstein's first several proofs for E equals MC squared failed. Um, Elon Musk's space company, SpaceX, the first three attempted launches were spectacular failures. I mean, at the end of 2008, Elon Musk was borrowing money from friends to, to pay rent. He had hit rock bottom. Thomas Edison famously said, I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. And so the goal should be to, to learn from each of these failures and to improve over time. We tend to have an obsession with grand openings in society, but the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. Um, and the way to make the finale grand is to experiment, to try, to put yourself out there. You're going to fail, but as long as you're learning from your failures and each iteration is better than the one that came before it, you're going to get so far in life. Okay. You just did it again. I think that's one of my most favorite sentences I've ever heard anyone say. Breakthroughs are evolutionary, not revolutionary. Mm -hmm. That is ginormous. You're saying it's a matter of time. Like it's not an, oh my God, something happened. It's, it's an evolution. Like I don't think people think that. I think people think you either get lucky, you try it, it hits. Oh my God, this person like had this magical, like, you know, potion. Not if I just keep going, I will get there or something will come. 
it's huge, but you're also saying, but learn from what's not working. Like that's a huge piece, get the data and then implement. So there's so much I want to talk to you about this, but do you want to keep going through the strategies or should we start to piece these apart? No, we can totally start to piece these together. I just, I just wanted to echo what you just said, Kathy, in terms of learning from failure. You're right that people don't learn from failure in, in part because what you said, people just say, oh, this is me. I'm just going to keep doing it this way and damn the torpedoes kind of thing. And the other part of it is when we fail, we often externalize it. So when we fail, we blame other people or other factors for why we failed. So if a business fails, they'll say, well, we didn't have enough cash flow. It was, you know, our competitors had too much market share and this and that. But personal culpability just often doesn't make the list. And when you don't admit that you failed because you made a mistake, because you made a bad decision, if you don't do that kind of soul searching, you're not going to learn from failure. You're not going to get that data that's so bad. Failure, by the way, can be the best teacher if you know how to approach it properly. Have you seen the famous TED Talk that Tony Robbins did in Silicon Valley? I don't think so. Everybody was there. Like all the giants of Silicon Valley were, were there, including Al Gore. For some reason, Al Gore was <laughs> in the audience. So he said, raise your hand if you've ever failed. And not everybody raised their hand. And he goes, I can hear your hearts beating. If you're here, you failed. So raise your freaking hand, you know? So then everyone's <laughs> hands go up. So then he says, tell me why you failed. Just shout out answers. And people are like, not enough money, not enough, you know, investors, venture capital, whatever, like all these external factors. And Al Gore from the second row says, not enough Supreme Court justices, right? Because he mm, lost sure. in that election. Right. So <laughs> he says, with all due respect, I'm going to tell you why all of those things had nothing to do with why you failed, including that election. Mm. And Al Gore's like, what? And he goes, you're the reason. It's really interesting because it's our responsibility. And boy, do we not want to take responsibility for it. We just don't. But then we don't gain anything from it, right? So I love this conversation so much. So when it, let's just start with the first thing. Let's, we're going to go in stages. Sure. Number one. I would say the reason why this is one of my favorite episodes we've ever done is because A, you're awesome, but B, it's such a critical message. And I'll tell you why. Because across the board, people think they have a business problem. They have a courage problem. Mm -hmm. That's it. They are afraid to fail. They're afraid to get it wrong. They're afraid to look stupid. They're afraid to make something mediocre. So they don't. And then they think it's that they need me to give them some answer. They need me to give them some right. formula. When everyone you just listed didn't have a workaround, right? Mm -hmm. The workaround was the through it. Got to go through it. Got to fail a few times. So let's talk about that. How can we embrace this? So a couple of things come to mind. One is we often assume when we do take a leap and try something we haven't tried before that there is no turning back. We assume life as you know it is going to come to an end. Right. Right? But that is a faulty assumption in most cases because a lot of our decisions in life come with two-way doors, not one-way doors. Two-way doors meaning you can walk into a new room, have a look around, and if you don't like what you see, you can walk back out. Our decisions tend to be reversible. So I think you know, someone who's in a position where they're thinking about trying something new and they're afraid 
to take the lead, I think that's a useful framing for a lot of people to, to say, okay, I'm going to try this thing, but if it doesn't work, is there a way out? And in most cases, there is a way out. Um, you know, if you're in the corporate world, for example, and you're, you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, you can try it, give it a year. You can always go back to the, to a corporate job, right? It's not, it's not going to be final. Um, and one of my favorite stories here is how Richard Branson started Virgin Atlantic. Starting an airline is a really risky investment, right? A lot of airlines fail. And so it looks like a one-way door where like you throw a bunch of money in and then if it doesn't work, you're screwed. Branson took what looked like a one-way door and converted it to a two-way door. So he negotiated this deal with Boeing where he would be allowed to return the first plane he bought if the airline wasn't successful. Um, so that basically was a way of like installing a doorknob on the other side and he could walk up, walk back out if he, he didn't like what, what he saw. So I think that's really important to keep, keep in mind. Ask yourself, is this a two-way door decision or a one-way door decision? And if it looks like a one-way door decision, think harder uh, because a lot of what looks like a one-way door, it's actually a two-way door. Uh, you're just not seeing the doorknob on the other side yet. Yeah. One thing that you made clear, and it seems that's, I mean, it's happening right now every day with COVID, right? Scientists are working so hard, harder than ever to come up with this cure. And every day, at least up till this moment, they don't have it, right? So right. instead of leaving the office saying, I'm not going back, this is ridiculous. It's not working. They expect this. This is like mm -hmm. part of this process, right? It's exactly what you're saying. There's an ex The expectation is, I'm going to keep doing this and keep finding. And I'm probably often they're leaving the office right now feeling excited because they're finding things that don't work and they're going, yep. awesome, I can rule that out. So how do we shift into the failure is not it not working, the failure is not trying? Or, or how do we understand that like this is not a reflection of like my entire essence because this didn't work, because I'm looking stupid and shift into like, this is so courageous. So I'm winning. I'm winning because I'm putting in this effort and all of that. Yeah. And I think what you, what you just said, Kathy, relates also to ego, right? Because one of the reasons why we're afraid of failing is because we wrap up our identity in what we do and what we produce. Yes. Scientists don't do that. So from, a, from the perspective of a scientist working to find, say, a vaccine for COVID, they're coming out with hypotheses. Some of these hypotheses are not going to work, but a scientist is not their hypothesis. There's a difference between the two. Just like you are not your podcast, I am not my book. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm the one who wrote the book, but my beliefs and my identity are not one and the same. Or at least I tried to not make them one and the same because the moment you do that, the moment your identity is tied with what you're doing, what you believe in, what your opinion is, changing your mind, oh trying something new means changing your identity, which is a really, really hard sell. Um, That's so powerful because psychologists have said that having our identity is one of the things that keeps us feeling the most safe, right? Mm -hmm. This is who I am. This is who I'm not. We're constantly doing that. This person is for me. This person isn't. I'm a this. That's why people love like, I'm this on the Zodiac. I'm this on the Enneagram. Yeah. Oh my God, that's yep. me. That's me. That's me. Like we're constantly trying to be known to ourselves. 
So this is so powerful because what you're saying is when we take something away and we attach ourselves to this piece of work, to this idea, and then all of a sudden it's destroyed or whatever, we now have to make a change. I never really got that, but that's fascinating because you're saying it's then a threat to who we think mm -hmm. is our essential self and we're not going to get we're not going to get very far. So we're going to keep our digging our heels in when like, that's not even who you are. Like, it's just, that's fascinating. Like you are not the sum total of your blog post. Yep. Who cares? In fact, you might come out with a blog post nine years later that says you totally disagree with what you said. That's so funny. You're going to change constantly. <laughs> exactly. And if you're not changing, you're in trouble. One of the chapters in the book is called the power of flip-flopping which is exactly what you just said, Kathy. Well, say more about that. Yeah, sure. So the idea of, of proving yourself wrong, which is so central to science. In life, we try to prove ourselves right. I mean, we try, that's the confirmation bias, right? We look for evidence that confirms what we know as opposed to looking for disconfirming evidence. And, but scientists do the opposite. So scientists will create hypotheses that are falsifiable. And then they will do their best to beat the crap out of their own ideas because that's the only way that they can develop some, some confidence in them. And to be able to do that, though, to be able to stress test your ideas, because the goal, I'm assuming here, is not to be right, but to find what's right. And if that's the goal, then a healthy separation between your beliefs, your opinions, and your identity is critical. Because if you are and this is why, by the way, in the modern world, disagreements often turn into existential death matches. Because we say to ourselves, I'm, I'm paleo, I'm vegan, I'm a CrossFitter. All of these things become built into our identity. So then changing them means changing our identity, which is a really, really hard sell. So that then ties into ego. One of the things that happened, and I've had all of these transformations in my life, uh, and by the way, they're hard. I mean, when you go from being a, a law professor at the top of my game to being a new podcaster and new blogger, it's such a humbling experience. I mean, you know, I went from being invited to everything, all these conferences, the speaking engagements to nothing. I was just a blogger, an amateur blogger asking people if I can syndicate my content in other places. I mean, it, like, it was such a humbling experience. Um, and one of my friends, academic friends, he called me after he saw my blog and he basically said, you're ruining your academic significance. Like people are going to look at this. They're going to laugh at you. Uh, they're not going to take you seriously anymore because serious law professors don't write books about rocket science, right? That's not something that serious law professors do. Serious law professors write serious academic articles that other academics are going to read. And what he said hurt. But, you know, I, I went back to this. Uh, there's a poem that I love by Donna Markova. Uh, she, the poem is called, I Will Not Die an Unlived Life. Mm. And she says, in one part of the poem, I choose to risk my significance so that what comes to me as seed can go on as blossom. And whenever I'm afraid of making a leap, her words just come to me from as echoes from my subconscious, just reminding me that I've got nothing to lose. Because it's only when you risk your significance. It's only when you drop the story you tell yourself. Yeah. When you look at yourself in the mirror each morning, 
about what serious lawyers, serious law professors, serious musicians do or don't do, that you can write a new story. Yeah. At the end of the day, we have to risk, like, what are all these people going to say is significant? Who really am I? Who did my parents say I am? Who did my uncle say I was for like, who am I really? Like what you just said, I don't want to die and unlive life. And so maybe for this other guy, he's going to write serious law journal stuff. That's not your work. Right. And the people who love Seth Godin are going to love you. You're going to find your own audience. And thank God you were willing to do that because this is one of the best conversations I've ever had. I want to ask you something else about science and failure Mm -hmm. and all this. So when Angela Duckworth was here and you know, all of this research, she said, you know, grit, which goes into everything you're saying, but she said the one thing that they've found that correlates with grit goes back to the first thing you said, which is optimism. She's Mm -hmm. like, you can't be a good scientist without optimism. You can't keep going without optimism. So it's interesting because we're born with sort of like a, a, a bias of how how much optimism we just naturally have as a default, which is interesting to know, but we actually have some control over creating and generating more optimism. Talk to me about how we build that into ourselves. Does that factor into your life? Does that resonate with you? And if so, what do you think about that? Totally. And I'm, I'm still a work in progress with that, by the way. But, but before I get into that, uh, you're absolutely right. Optimism plays a huge role in all of this. Because when we're about to try something new, about to enter into unknown territory, we often just tend to ask, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. And then we sort of let the fears of this like ominous future ruminate in our head. And these thoughts just keep, you know, banging from one side of our head to the next about like how life as we know it is going to come to an end. So I found it really helpful to actually write these down. What, what is the worst that can happen? Write down what I know. Um, and also ask, what's the best that can happen? Because if you just ask the what's the worst that can happen question, your mind will just focus on all the negatives because our minds do that anyway, right? I think it's, uh, I love this quote from, I think it's Rick Hansen. He says, our mind is like Velcro for negative thoughts, but Teflon for positive ones. So if you just focus on what's the worst that can happen, then you're not going to move. So optimism plays a huge role in all of this optimism just personally speaking is hard you know so in a lot of different periods of my life i've always looked at the worst and tried to prepare for the worst and i was i think telling myself a story that like that got me to where i am today being prepared for the worst planning for the worst but it took an immense toll uh and i'm now and i'm still doing this work of of looking at the at the positive side of things and actually hoping for the best. My, my assumption was this, if I expect less, then I won't be as disappointed if I don't get what I want. That for me at least is a faulty assumption because I am just as disappointed, just as sad when I don't get what I want. And now I suffer all along, right? Leading up to that point in time where you're waiting for this outcome, you're suffering because your expectations are so low. And so this is still something, something I'm working on where I'm actually hoping for the best and being more optimistic than, than I've been in the past. It's, it's a way of exercising the muscles, the optimism muscles, and in looking out, hoping for um, better outcomes and also asking yourself, what's the best that can happen? Yeah. 
And I think that's so honest and really cool of you to share it that candidly. I think it is really hard. And I think it's because we want to protect ourselves. We're not stupid. We're wired to protect ourselves. That's how the species has gone on so long. And, and we've gotten hurt, you know, before. So we don't want to feel that again. So this whole, like, I'll prepare for the worst is foreboding. So I don't have to be vulnerable and exposed to what, what's not going to work. But right now, in the middle of this pandemic, people are feeling very, very overwhelmed by what they're reading, what they're seeing, the economy, all of these things that are kind of seemingly like crashing and burning all around us. And everything you laid out and all the conversation we had up till now was all these people setting out to do something that also, this was impossible, this was never going to work. And yet victory after victory after victory. So how are you experiencing this? How are you seeing this moment and what's possible or what's not possible and how to sort of approach it given everything that you know about how to deal with things that are, are seemingly hard and impossible? Right. And, and one thing related to that that helped me is, so I had this idea that I had to prepare for the worst because that was the only way of defending myself if something went wrong, right? But the thing I've learned is that I can be really versatile. And I can be really agile. And even if I have, haven't prepared for something, I can adjust on the fly. Uh, and this isn't just me, by the way. Human beings are adaptable creatures. We are really afraid of uncertainty. And that is wired, I think, into our genetic programming. Because you know, centuries ago, if you weren't afraid of the unknown, you became food for a saber-toothed tiger. So, so then we're living with this genetic conditioning and we're seeing these horrible news about the disaster that COVID is wreaking on the world, and we don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. There are just so many unknowns right now, and all of that is scary. Um, but human beings are also really adaptable. I mean, we're afraid of change and, and uncertainty, but we can adjust on the fly. I mean, look at everything that's happening around us. You know, we're not seeing all the positives, but... A lot of businesses are still operational. And a lot of, by the way, I mean, the assumptions that businesses were operating under about you have to have in-person meetings and none of this can be done over email or over Zoom are being upended left and right. Which is amazing, like how that could change the world, how how that could change the carbon footprint, people's time with their kids. Like my husband, I always say, because we live in LA, it's LA is the the king of like, I had a good meeting, good meeting, good meeting. People meet about the meetings. It's always like meet, 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 meet. You know, it's like, what are you actually doing? You're just meetings. You know, I went on a meeting with this agent. I went on a meeting with this manager. I had a meeting about this film, meet, meet, meet. So it's like, it kind of seems like some of that is ridiculous, right? Like we yeah. can do this in our pajamas. We sometimes be more effective at home, right? Work less, four hour work week. Hmm. Exactly. It's interesting. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. And you don't have to commute, right? You're like, you live in Los Angeles, like all that time lost commuting is now can be put to more productive use or can be put to like spending time with your family or spending time with yourself. And, and I think the other adjustment that I'm seeing at least in our community, you know, before when you needed something, you just ordered from Amazon. And now neighbors are helping each other out. My wife, who is one of the most generous people I know, she, uh, she wrote notes to all of our neighbors, some of whom we'd never met before, just saying, hey, we wanted to check in. Uh, this was entirely her idea, so I can't take any credit for it. Oh, um, saying, like, do you need anything? Do you want anything? 
Is there anything we can do to help you? Even if it's just like, you want to talk to someone, here's my phone number. And then she left chocolate bars with each of these note cards. And so a lot of these adjustments, I think, are flying under people's radars because we're just so focused on horrible news that are on the front page every day. Um, but we're not seeing a lot of the adaptability and the resilience of the human spirit. That's just flying under the radar right now. Um, I love that you're saying that. We are so adaptable. It's amazing how quickly people got on Zoom, you know, yeah. how quickly like you said, lots, lots of businesses. What about the businesses that are still fully operational? Like we figured out a way to make it work and with less, you know, damage to the environment. Um, actually, you know, what about that? What about looking at that? That is also true, right? Exactly. And just, just related to that, just very quickly, my book tour got canceled. So my book tour, my book is coming out on April 14th. This is my debut yeah. on academic book and it got canceled. And I, and I have to admit, like I spent two days just crushed. Of course. And, and then I went back to my rocket science training because I spent those two days just wishing reality to be different than it is, which is a profoundly unproductive exercise. It's like trying to change what cannot be changed. So the mo most productive thing we can do right now, if you're listening to this and if you are finding yourself in a position where you want to sort of go back and, and desire or wish that this didn't happen, ask yourself the more productive question of like, okay, I can't do what I had planned to do, but what can I do given the, the hand that I was dealt by the universe? How can I use my skills, resources, products to solve the problems that the world needs to be solved right now, as opposed to the problems that I wanted to solve, as opposed to the problems that I thought I would solve? Because you are far more adaptable than you give yourself credit for. Yeah, that's so true. Given all the stuff that we talked about, what can we start to do to make these giant leaps? What are some of the things that we can, because we have now so much understanding of what this means and from a philosophical perspective, how to like change our mindset around it, which I think is so helpful. But tell us a few things that we can start to implement to really make this a part of our life. I think the first thing is curiosity. Forget about what your passion is. Look to curiosity. Uh, what are you curious about? What do you want to learn? What are your skills? You know, what are the experiences you've had that could be useful right now? And, and think about what the world needs. So that's the first step is curiosity and looking to what the world actually needs. How can you use your skills and resources to put them to good use in this moment in time? Uh, that's step number one. Step number two is placing small bets. So experimenting. And that brings together and goes back to a lot of what we talked about here already. That will probably mean risking your significance. It will mean risking, you know, all of these thoughts that are going to come up. Like, what if it, this doesn't work? What if others point and laugh? What do I make a fool out of myself? That's all the ego talking. So placing those small bets, small experiments, looking to see what works and what doesn't work. If something doesn't work, learn from it. Failure is really valuable data. If something does work on the first try, don't get cocky. Uh, there's a chapter in my book called Nothing Fails Like Success. Because success tends to boost egos, especially if it comes early on. Because when we succeed on the first try, or even like if you fail first and then you succeed, 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 that tends to inflate the ego because now you think you're invincible. 
Now you think you've made it and that nothing can go wrong. And I tell the story of the Challenger and Columbia Space Shuttle disasters in the book about how these, you know, such capable rocket scientists at NASA made really bad decisions because they had a string of successes and they thought nothing could go wrong. So that's really important to keep in mind. Just like we don't learn from failure, we often don't learn from success. And so I've made the habit of asking myself the same questions after I fail and after I succeed, which is what went wrong with this failure? What went right with this failure? What went right with the success? And what went wrong with the success? We never ask ourselves that second question, what went wrong with the success? Because it's possible to make a bad decision, get lucky and succeed. Uh, But just because you're in a hot streak doesn't mean you'll beat the house. So it's like conducting a postmortem after a success and and just evaluating what went right and what went wrong. And, And keeping in mind that we are a species of moonshots. And so as you're putting these experiments into place, aim a little bit higher, just a little bit higher. You don't have to aim for the moon, but aim a little bit higher than you would have done before. I want to say two things. One, Adam Grant loves you and he's so awesome. He was here. He's, he's one of the only people we've ever had on the show who does that. So at the end of the, his interview, while we were still recording, he's like, are we still recording? I said, yeah, I didn't turn it off yet. He goes, okay, keep it on. What could I have done better in this interview? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? I don't, nothing. And he's like, nope, I'm not letting you, please tell me. I want to know one thing. I was like, oh my God, I respect him. So I'm going to give him an answer because it'd be rude to just like patronize him. So I was like, okay, hang on, let me think about it. And then I told him something and he was like, ah, awesome. So can I answer that question again then? What you said I didn't quite answer. And he was like, thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate it. I was like, oh, this is why he's such a beast because like he wants to grow from everything, right? Not just be like, I'm awesome, coasting now, soaring. So that's really cool. And I also wanted to mention it because you guys, Adam loves everything that Ozan has done. He actually picked his book as like his favorite of 2020. It was number one on his list of top 20 leadership books of 2020. Not a bad endorsement. Okay, listen, this is the thing I want to ask you before you go. You've said it so many times and you've, you've almost said it's like one of your most important pieces of this whole thing is like learning from what doesn't work. But we haven't really said how to do that. It's about like looking at what's not working and understanding data, understanding your customers' needs and what they needed and what they didn't need and all that stuff. And could you, could you just yep. say a little bit about that? Yep, totally. So you mentioned our customers' needs. And this actually goes back to something we, we talked about on my podcast, which is radical empathy. We often don't learn from our failures because we're not looking at them from the perspective of our customers. We look at our failures from our own perspective about what went wrong and, and what went right. We're not looking at it from our customers' perspectives. And so putting yourself in your customer's shoes is really, really important. Uh, I'm going to give an example that I cite in the book, and this is from the medical context. So the design firm idea was brought in by this, I think it was a hospital system in Minnesota to redesign the patient experience. Because if you've been in a hospital room or even if you haven't, I mean, you know what it looks like, right? It's like these are soulless, featureless rooms that suck the life out of you. Fluorescent lights, white colored walls. I mean, it's just, they're horribly designed. And so they brought in idea to redesign the patient experience. And I'm sure the hospital executives were like expecting a snazzy PowerPoint with new designs for these hospital rooms. 
Instead, what they got was the idea of designers walked up and they played them a video. They played the hospital executives a video. And the video was just a six minute clip showing nothing but the ceiling of a hospital room. And they said, this is what your patients see all day. Oh my God, chills. By the way, it sounds so obvious, right? Like looking at, yeah, of course, that's what they look at all day. But we miss that because we're not looking at our services from the perspective of those we serve. And the way they did it, by the way, was one of the idea designers checked into the hospital as a patient and he filmed everything. He carried a camera with him. He documented every part of the abysmal patient experience on, on camera. And just seeing that six minute clip was enough to prompt hospital workers into action. They decorated the ceilings right away. They put up whiteboards for visitors to leave messages. Uh, they put, and this is also so simple, they put rear view mirrors on hospital stretchers so hospitals could see the nurses wheeling them around, right? It's so simple, but you can't communicate with someone if you can't see their face. So I really encourage those listening to do that because we're often just not seeing other people's truths. And, and the only way that you can do that is to actually put yourself in their shoes and look at the world from their perspective. This doesn't take much, right? But look at what they see. Look at what they believe. Look at what's working for them and what's not working for them. And drop the story you're telling yourself. That's really, really important. That is so gorgeous. Thank you for sharing all of this. It just reminded me of a, there's an amazing woman I follow online. Uh, Her handle is Lindsay Letters. She has like 400,000 Instagram followers. And her daughter had a TBI in August and brain injury. And she just posted the ceiling of the pediatric floor. They put these little blinking, twinkly, like star lights in the ceiling. You saw it or you know? No, I didn't see it, but that's amazing. And she was crying and she's like, look at the, it's the little details, you know? Cause it's like, they had something to look at that made it look magical or whatever. Cause it's like absolute horror show. And it's so beautiful, this thing. And I'm, I will close with this. this. This whole piece of what you just said, put yourself in their shoes, have that empathy. I mean, there couldn't be a better example than here's a six minute video of looking at the ceiling, like boom, like this is their perspective. But part of what you also shared in this entire thing would be look at it from their perspective, meaning get rid of your ego, you know, because there's probably things that they love about you. And it's not about how much you tear yourself apart. And it's not about your identity being this or this or this. Like if you really listen to what people need and if it's about other people, it saves you so much of this heartache. Everything you've said is just so beautiful. I took like a page of notes and I think you're such a special gifted soul. And you guys, he has a podcast, Famous Failures. He's interviewed such cool people, Gretchen Rubin, Ryan Levesque. Neil Pasricha, who's a lot of people who've been on this show, love him. You guys would love it. You also do ongoing things, right? Yeah. And uh, the best way to keep in touch with me, by the way, is my weekly email. So you can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. And that's, I'm not all that active on social media. And so that's where people tend to go to keep in touch with me. And then my new book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist is you can find that at wherever books are sold. Um, but if you go to, if it's okay with you, Kathy, I'd love to offer a Please. bonus to your audience. All of it, all the things. Okay. Tell us. So, so if you go to rocketscience.book.com forward slash Kathy, so I recorded 12 videos, 12 like three minute videos with practical insights from the book that you can implement right away. 
And so you can find out how to get that from there. And I'd love to offer that. We will put the link to that in the show notes and I will swipe up to it as well in my Instagram. I think you're awesome. Awesome. I want everyone to have as much of you as possible. You're really such a gem. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. And I also want to say thank you so much for this amazing space you create on this (laughs) podcast, because honestly, a lot of the stories I told, I haven't told before um, because I just don't, either don't feel safe or I don't know. This was so special. Thank you so much. That is the single thing that means the most to me. You're awesome. And I'm going to go get your book. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Such a good conversation. Okay, here are the takeaways. Number one, we are a species of moonshots. You don't have to aim for the moon, but aim a little higher. What you strive for becomes your ceiling. Number two, don't fail fast, learn fast. Ask yourself what went right and what went wrong in your failures and successes. Number three, breakthroughs are evolutionary, not revolutionary. Number four, life comes with two-way doors. We can try something new and walk back out. Number five, stress test your ideas. The goal is not to be right, but to find what's right. Number six, risk your significance so that what comes to you as a seed can go on and blossom. Number seven, hope for the best, exercise your optimism muscle. Number eight, ask yourself, what can I do given the hand I was dealt by the universe? How can I use my resources to solve problems that the world needs to be solved right now instead of problems I thought I wanted to solve? You are far more adaptable than you give yourself credit for. And number nine, put yourself in the shoes of your customer. What do they see? What do they believe? What's working? What's not working for them? Drop the story you're telling yourself and look at the world from their perspective. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I know that it's such a crazy time. There's a million things going on and it just means the world to me that you're here. Remember, we are doing a five-day challenge. It's called Here For This because I am here for this. It is all about learning what is possible in this time. How can you create a thriving online business right now? And we will spend five gorgeous days together and it starts May 11th, but please go sign up because we're going to start welcoming people in that private Facebook group right away. You can sign up, go to the link in my Instagram bio or the link in the show notes. Do you feel like this podcast is bringing value to you? Do you feel like this is giving you life? If so, can you think of one person who might benefit from it? Because I would love for you to refer them. I would love for you to let them know about it. And I'd love for you to make sure that you're subscribed. It's all free to do that. So we're still doing our STAR giveaway. STAR stands for subscribe, tag, and review. So if you just subscribe to the show, go ahead and talk about the show on Instagram and tag one of your friends and then leave us a review and send us a screenshot with the word star in the subject line and send us a screenshot of your review. We're going to pick two of you last day of every month and we're going to give you a scholarship to my program as well as some don't keep your day job, adorable swag. We've got hoodies, we've got mugs, so cute. So go ahead and do that. Just subscribe to the podcast, tag a friend when you post about the show on Instagram and review. It's the best way that you can help us and it doesn't cost you a dime. I love you guys so much. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. When you just can't sleep When you're counting sheep I'll be here for you I'll be here for you When you need to talk Take a good long walk I'll be here for you, I'll be here for you Of all the people on the planet If I had my choice, I couldn't have planned it better than this It doesn't get better than this
when you're counting 